Hello and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners, including our colleagues at Tax Banter, Webmartin Consulting and Tax Ed to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. I'm joined by one of my colleagues, Jenny Dayborn, who is a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter. Today, we're going to have a yak about the ATO's focus on work-related expenses. Jenny, welcome to Tax Yak. Thanks, Robin. It's good to be here. Great to have you here. All right, there's been a lot of attention over the past year, um, I guess over many years, but in particular the last year in relation to claims being made for work-related expenses and the ATO's interest in those claims. If we have a look at uh, some of the background and provide some context, for the last year, the ATO has been talking about the tax gap. Now, a gap is defined as the difference between an estimated amount of a liability theoretically payable and the amount that is actually reported or collected by the ATO over a given period. Now, for the last year, they've said it's big, but we've now got some figures. And the ATO announced mid-year that for the 14-15 income year, the work-related expenses tax gap, or the tax gap relating to individuals, was $8.7 billion. In other words, they're collecting about 94% or so of the tax they should be collecting, but there's a really big gap there. Most of the gap related to incorrect claims for work-related expenses, but there was also some omitted income, for example, cash wages not being declared, and also rental property expenses being claimed incorrectly. I want to walk through with you some of the the errors that people are making on some of the issues that the ATO is coming across. But just before we get into that, I just want to mention to our listeners that Mid-year, again around July, the ATO released some really useful and quite colourful fact sheets on work-related expenses. Now, in relation to the uh, categories that they cover, there's one for car expenses, clothing and laundry, travel expenses, employees working from home, and self-education expenses. They're also accompanied by 18 fact sheets that relate to specific occupations. So if you want to go and find these particular ATO fact sheets, they're they're not intuitive on the ATO website. It would be good if they were. So I suggest that you put in the following search term into your search engine, Tax Time Toolkit 2018. That's Tax Time Toolkit 2018. And in your search results, if you look for a URL or a web address that has iOrder in it, it may not seem like an ATO website, but iOrder is the one you want. And when you get into that, the ATO has available as PDF downloads a range of these documents. So, Jenny, your thoughts on these documents that were released mid-year, how useful are they? Oh, I think they're really useful. They're quite comprehensive, they're practical, they're simple, easy to read, and they've got lots of uh, calculations in them. Uh, it, at the end of the day, taxpayers want to be able to easily see what the rules are and what they can actually do to comply with the the rules. And by the ATO publishing these fact sheets in a a practical manner, um, they should get a lot more use than they probably are. But as you say, it would be much easier if they were more prominent on the ATO's website. Do you think there's been misunderstandings over many years as to what you can and can't claim? And we'll get into the specifics of particular claims shortly. But do you think broadly there's been misunderstandings? Uh, absolutely, because the number of accountants out there who would say that they lose a client because 
they won't claim an amount that the the taxpayer wants to claim and the taxpayer's response to that, but everyone else is claiming it. So from the ATO's point of view, it's really easy audit technique to fill in their so-called gap by all they need to do is audit one employee of a large employer. And if they find a fundamental error in one employee's tax return and there's 300 other workers for that same employer, there's a really easy target for next week's audit by going back and looking at all the other employees for that same employer. So when we lose a client because we won't do something, it doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. Just because everybody else is doing it doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to be the, you know, they're going to be correct uh, at the end of the day. So we just need to be really careful about only claiming what we're entitled to claim and not worrying about what other people would say that their friends do and uh, all their colleagues and the and uh, you know the people and their social occasions and things. All right. The ATO has put out some golden rules. And from my perspective, when I'm out talking to uh, the accountants that we train, so many of them seem to forget some of the fundamentals. Yeah, Section mm. 8.1, mm. you can claim a loss or an outgoing to the extent it's incurred in gaining or producing accessible income. Yeah, we've known that provision since we left uni. And yet the basic rules about incurring the amount are sometimes overlooked. So mm. the ATO has reminded us of the three golden rules. One, the taxpayer must have incurred the expense themselves. So they must have paid for it. And if indeed they did pay for it but were reimbursed for it by their employer, then of course they can't claim it because there's no net outlay. Two, they must have incurred it in gaining or producing their accessible income. So that's the nexus. Mm. It's got to relate to their accessible income. And of course, there's all sorts of different interpretations as to what that expression means. It mustn't be capital in nature. It mustn't be private in nature. And it mustn't be non-deductible under any other provision in the law. And number three, the claim must comply with the substantiation rules. So you've got to have written records of the amount that you have incurred, subject, of course, to your five-year record-keeping requirement. So we'll have a chat in more detail shortly about the substantiation rules, because that seems to be a big area of misunderstanding. There seem to be uh, this perception that I can claim amounts without records because of all these substantiation exceptions. And one of the other areas too that um, it's very easy to, to make is doing a tax return. At the end of the day, accountants are time poor like everybody else and a salary and wage return doesn't necessarily generate a huge amount of income. So it's very tempting to pick up a client file, look at what you claim for them last year and then continue on the same basis. And that just repeats the error if the error is wrong. Jenny, but, just to cut you off there, I've got a joke that I roll out quite often in this context. Oh. Why did the accountant cross the road? Because oh. they did it last year. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. But it's very true because yeah. people just go out to last year's work papers. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so so the, the reality is we look back to last year, they claim 5,000 kilometres, so we claim 5,000 kilometres this year and then when you, uh, you know, the ATO comes and looks at the file in the event that they do, uh, you know, our work papers show nothing because all we've done is repeat last year and it is very easy to find that whilst the employee might have been employed by the same employer for the last 10 years, their role might have changed. They might not have actually even used their car for work for the last five years and yet that just then... Uh, puts you know egg all over the accountant's face but it also puts the accountant higher on the ATO's priority list because the way that the ATO looks at which uh, tax returns they order they might pick occupations and salary levels but that will also lead back to accountants and it's easy to run a list of the tax agent registration code and the types of claims that they have and how many they have over a certain amount uh, over a certain period of time and then uh, that can lead to a much broader 
uh, audit going forward. So we've just got to be really mindful that just because everybody else does it, just because we did it last year, doesn't matter. We've got to stop each year, start fresh, ask the question, you know, what expenses have we incurred? Have they got the connection between the income? And then what are the substantiation rules and can we comply with those? All right. So perhaps if we delve into these general claims one by one, D1, car expenses. So just to give you some statistics and then we can launch into a discussion. In 1516, over 3 million taxpayers claimed around $8.5 billion in car expenses. That's an average claim of $2,800 per claimant. Now, with 5,000K, it was 66 cents, of course. We're getting pretty close to these people claiming an average of 5,000K. You know, call it 4,500 or so. What are your perceptions on how people are claiming this amount and are they doing it correctly again it's one of those things that if i use my car for work that means i'm entitled to a claim of five thousand kilometers and with having so many individuals claiming five thousand kilometers it is for five thousand kilometers per taxpayer per car per year but if you travel in excess of that, then you can either do the logbook method or limit your claim to 5,000. So having a huge number of people claiming exactly 5,000 is not the end of the world. It's just a question of whether they are actually entitled to that claim at all. And it, again, it's not just a standard deduction. You've got to calculate by reasonable estimate the number of kilometres that you actually do and then uh, work backwards to see whether you've got the, the correct records. And the ATO, I mean, I, I actually like the ATO's app on my deductions, which is you know nice and easy because that actually allows you to create a logbook via the app or uh, just record all the trips because it'll come up with D1, it'll come up with car, it'll allow you to put in your destination, it'll ask you whether you want to return trip and it will calculate the kilometres and and add them for you and uh, you know and every now and then you get an email saying you haven't backed up lately and it will uh, cause you to uh, you know enter into a or create a spreadsheet uh, of your expenses for the year and then this year with the tax time toolkit the ATO gave us the uh, the mechanism to download the information with the photos if we've taken photos of any receipts for work-related expense claims and allow that to be transferred across to the tax agent's portal. So the information is quite there. Is there. It's just a question of whether taxpayers are calculating their claims correctly and then keeping the right records. Uh, the ATO's document here, car expenses, what's under the bonnet, is actually quite, quite useful and explains both the cents per kilometre and the logbook method. But one of the interesting things on that fact sheet Jenny, was that above 5,000, yes, you run logbook. But mm. if it's up to 5,000, mm. it does say you still need to have a reasonable basis for working mm. out your claim. And it goes on to say a reasonable basis for working out your claim would involve keeping some sort of diary record. Mm. So you're not running a formal logbook, 12 weeks, opening, closing, odometer, etc., and running that every five years. But you've still got to work out... I did X number of trips to that client, that's 300K return trip, and I did that three times in the year. Mm. So I still think there's a need to have this written record of how you arrived at the figure and not just pluck figures out of the air. That's right. I, I say to people, a lot of clients, a lot of accountants, a lot of their, their clients have the little date calendars on their desk. And, you know, if you use your car for work, write it on that day, the end of the month or end of the year, tally it all up, keep all the records, uh, transpose it across to, to a permanent file if you like. But somewhere write down that you don't necessarily need to substantiate the actual expenses, but you need to have 
the evidence to show that you actually did use your car for work that day. Now, it would help if I, in my diary, say that I've claimed 115 kilometres from you know Melbourne to Ballarat today, that in my diary actually shows that I was working in Ballarat today. So it's not about just writing down, roughly I do this, but you know have some sort of a tie-in to, to your actual workload would, would substantiate it at the end of the day. Because remember, if the ATO came, came along and feel that my claim is incorrect, they can knock that out. And I have to show that they are incorrect with evidence. And then I have to show what the correct answer is with evidence. And if I don't have any records at all, then I'm very unlikely to be able to prove my claim. With the D1 car expenses, what I, what I would say in practice is what clients need to, to think about is, or accountants need to think about in dealing with their clients is, first thing is, is it their car? Uh, second thing is, were they reimbursed? And the the third issue was, you know, if I was the AGO and I questioned your D1 expense, I would ask for a letter from the employer confirming that you need to use your own car at your own expense. So Can I go back to one of the points you mentioned. What if it's not their own car? Okay, so if it's not my own car, and the example I would use here, uh, so my son, uh, his, his car is in my name. His car, his address, he's listed as the main driver on the insurance policy. Uh, you know, he could pay the bills, he could sell it when he wants to, his car, but it's in my name. Now, when the ATO will data match to VicRoads, they will see that if my son's tax return has a D1 claim in it, then they data match to VicRoads, he does not own a car. So that's an easy way for the ATO to audit that that taxpayer does not own a car in their name. If he uses that car for work purposes, that's right. He therefore doesn't claim it at D one. Where does he put it? If he doesn't claim it at D one, he could claim it at D two. I would say though, in that instance, there's constructive ownership. So it may not be registered in his name for all other purposes, though it's his car. So if that's the case, which the taxpayer will have to prove, which I generally say to people, look at your insurance policy, which address is that car listed as being insured at and who is the main driver? And that would support that it really is his car. It's just registered in his name, in in my name. Other than that, you would say then he could claim whatever he pays me if he's using my car and he could claim that as a travel expense under D2. Um, with with your car expenses, the other thing is remember that it's got to be your car. And you, we ask the the taxpayer were they reim well? Do we ask the taxpayer whether they were reimbursed? Practically, uh, the ATO's document on withholding from allowances, so QC five one six eight zero, is brilliant for all employers who make payments to to staff because it looks at the allowances that are paid, whether they are required to be on the payment summary and whether there's withholding, et cetera, to be calculated or you know taken from them. With the cents per kilometre reimbursement, there are many employers out there who would debit travel credit bank and it is not going to ever appear on a payment summary. Now, the problem with that is if it doesn't appear on the payment summary and the ATO's document says clearly that it should, a reimbursement cents per kilometre is an allowance that must always appear in a payment summary. If it doesn't appear on the payment summary and the client brings in their payment summary for me to do their tax return, we'll look at this and say, you know, your car, yes. Did you use your car for work? Yes. We don't necessarily ask the question, were you reimbursed? 
because if they were, it should appear on the payment summary. And the reality is it doesn't. And therefore, we run the risk that we are double claiming, which is why I would also suggest that when we're looking at D1 claims is that we ask the client, if the ATO asked, would you be comfortable getting a letter from your employer confirming that you need to use your own car at your own expense? Because that then brings in the whole issue, but would the employer do that? Now, the chances are they're going to not do that if we were, in fact, reimbursed by the employer. Now, what the ATO has been doing uh, a little bit of at the moment is talking to employers and just cold call to the payroll person, the person who pays all the bills. In your staff, when they travel for work, how do you handle the reimbursement? So do you reimburse the actual expenses or do you pay them an allowance? And if you pay them an allowance, does it appear on your payment summary? So in my mind, the ATO is doing a bit of background checking on employers. Now, it doesn't say that they are going to audit that employer's employees, but the reality is that it's an easy target for them. And I just think it's something that we need to be really mindful of. So D1 is a big target for the ATO. It's a big target for taxpayers because it seems easy to claim, but it's a big target from the ATO because there's a lot of errors being made in there. All right, so moving on to D2, travel expenses, what are the, some of the, the common mistakes that you see and also what guidance can we get from the Commissioner's Draft Ruling 2017 D6? Is this a helpful ruling or is it not? The ATO has released a, a draft ruling on travel expenses, which in my opinion is not very helpful. They will give examples of when they believe the travel is deductible and other examples of when they tra- believe the travel is not deductible, but they don't tell us why. And if they don't explain why, how in practice are accountants supposed to be able to apply those examples when their client circumstances are not exactly on par with one of the ATO's examples? So hopefully when that's released in final form, uh, the issues will be, will be cleared or a lot clearer. Um, In terms of travel expenses themselves, the big problem we have with D2 is that clients receive an allowance, so they receive an allowance, they automatically assume it's their God-given right to claim an amount equal to the ATO's figure, irrespective of whether they spent any money at all. In some cases, we've seen, uh, in fact, there was a tribunal case where a taxpayer had paid for money for genuine travel expenses, had been fully reimbursed that amount, but then proceeded to claim the difference between that amount and the ATO figures as a tax deduction when she hadn't even incurred it. That's right. That's right. And of course, that was disallowed by the tribunal. Exactly. Now, the way I look at this one is I say in order to deal with, because taxpayers often believe they can claim the ATO's figure, the ATO themselves have recently questioned why on earth they publish those figures. Are and, they too generous? And, uh, it's not necessarily that they're too generous. It's that they are uh, they are manipulated in that you know I stayed in a motel uh, a few years ago and one of the uh, the companion in the motel said you know uh, no visitors after six p.m. and no four, more than four people in a room and I had to chuckle to myself because the town had limited accommodation but there are a mighty lot of workers there on travel allowances so they would all bunk in get their travel allowance all claim the expenses and not spend anywhere near what they received and yet their tax returns would clearly show I received two hundred and fifty dollars for the night ATO figures two. 90 so I claim 290 and because I'm not claiming any more than the ATO's figure I don't need to substantiate the problem is they didn't incur the expense in the first place. Also private expense is an issue I was asked recently about someone who travels on business stays in a motel for for work purposes but they were wanting to know whether they could claim things like DVD hire magazines 
you know, whether we're getting into in-room massages or whatever else. Mm. I mean, there are all sorts of things that you can pay for privately. Mm. And just because you are staying away from your home for work doesn't automatically mean that all these things fall under incidentals. No, that's right. And to that's me, incidentals right. is a really a legacy from the leftover days of, you know, you claim a bus ticket or a, an amount that wasn't strictly accommodation or meals. But incidentals today, you know, what do we consider as an incidental and when would you claim that? That's right. And when you look at the, the ATO's reasonable figures, they have the three meals for the day and the incidentals. And we're left now with a question mark, what is an incidental? What does that mean? Because in today's era, there probably is nothing that would fit in there as actually a deductible under that specific, uh, you know, combination of, well, of, of expenses. Well, movie hire and dry cleaning no, and things that's like right. that. That's right. that's right. That's right. Exactly. All right, so clothing and laundry, big one, mm-hmm. item D3. Yep. Now, things that I've seen over the years, just to give you some figures to kick off with, in 1516, over 6.3 million taxpayers claimed about $1.8 billion in clothing and laundry work-related expenses. Now, 6.3 million making a claim for clothing and laundry – We've only got about 13 million taxpayers in the country. So one in two people walking around out in the streets is wearing a uniform to work or is wearing protective clothing. It just seems an astronomically high figure. Now, some of the misconceptions revolve around this $150 for laundry. So I really think the starting point is let's understand what type of clothing is deductible firstly, and then we can talk about when you can clean it and claim a deduction for that. So the four categories of clothing, we've got our uniforms, compulsory, non-compulsory. Compulsory, generally the employer is going to pay for that anyway, but if the employee pays for it, fully deductible. If it's non-compulsory, the uniform would have to be registered on the textile, clothing and footwear, corporate wear register. And having a tiny logo that doesn't meet the guidelines or having too many colours or having things in the wrong place might um, prohibit those uniforms from being recognised and therefore deductible. We then get into occupation-specific clothing. So this will be your barrister's robes and your chef's pants and nurse's uniforms, things like that. And then we've got our protective clothing. So there may be things like if you work in a cold store, you work up at the ski fields or you are a a dental assistant and you need to wear your protective mask or of course we get into things like steel cap boots and and high vis if you work on the roads so with all these categories we've still got to look at you know whether or not these amounts are deductible because they're generally not conventional clothing and Jenny one of the biggest things I come across is but my boss says I have to wear it that's so right. That's I might right. work in a, a retail store. My boss says that I have to wear that brand of clothing, otherwise I can't work there. Yeah. And I think these people are confusing corporate policy, the policy of the company they work for, with what is allowed under the tax act. That's right. That's right. At, at the end of the day, I used to always have a bit of a giggle about sports girl that I wouldn't be able to afford to work there because I'd have to spend all my clothes on my, my money on clothes to, to work there. Uh, but the reality is that I may be required to wear to work clothing that is currently on sale, uh, but I would get that at a discount. And there are some FBT concessions available for employers there. But just because my employer requires me to wear a specific black pants, white shirt, etc., does not mean I'm entitled 
to a tax deduction uh, for that. What, what a lot of employers are doing these days when it is the more expensive clothing, I'm told, is that there is a, a, a rack of clothes out the back and when you come in in the morning, you grab something from the rack of clothes and you wear that for the day and then you place it back and it gets laundered by somebody else and that way you don't have to pay for these. I have a bit of a giggle there. Uh, you'd hate to be last in because you'll be left with whatever's left and it might be either too tight or too big and uh, we'll all have a bit of a, a joke that day. But the reality is that just because my boss says that I need to wear a specific thing doesn't mean it's deductible. It has to fit within one of the four categories to be able to be deductible. So Jenny, let me throw some examples at you and mm-hmm. give me a quick yes or no on each of these examples. I am a real estate agent, I'm an auctioneer and I have to wear a suit to work. Um, no. Well, but I have to wear it on a Saturday. Yeah, no. <laughs> I work in a restaurant and I have to wear black. No. I work in a gym and I have to wear gym gear. Oh, see, that's a that's a big no-no, isn't it? Active wear. We wear that all day, every day, don't we? But my boss says I have to wear it. And, that's I, right. and I have to wear that gear because I can't wear a corporate suit in a gym environment. That's so why right. can't I claim my runners and my active wear? That's right. But the same thing is that a, as someone who's conducting an auction on a Saturday can't wear their gym gear. So our job is our job. We're required to dress a certain way to, to be able to do our job. That doesn't necessarily mean it's deductible. You know, when I'm walking down the street, if I'm wearing a suit then what tells people where I work? Now, the example I would always use for with our, our clients is Ray White because they're everywhere. Uh, you know, if I have Ray White written all over my suit, then there's a really good chance it's going to comply with the uniform rules. But we have to actually check that. Whether I'm uh, at the gym or down the street, if I'm wearing my Ray White suit, people know where I work. And that's usually sort of the indication. But a suit is just a suit and it's just conventional clothing. All right, what about the laundering expenses? So we've got 150 of laundry. Everyone Mm. knows the rules. You have to substantiate above 150. Mm. That's easy. Mm. Under 150, there seems to have been this misconception again that it's a free-for-all, that you can just whack 150 into your tax return and, in fact, 1.6 million Australians are claiming exactly $150 for laundering expenses. Mm. What are the rules? Do you have to substantiate? It's not $150 free for all. It's based on the 50 cents a load if you share your clothing with your private and a dollar a load if you don't. Of course, we don't share our washing with our business and our private clothes, do we? So, you know, $150 without substantiation. Um, what accountants sort of probably end up with is something like $144 or something like that in there. Uh, the if I am not entitled to a deduction for the underlying clothing, then I'm not entitled to a deduction for the laundry and dry cleaning. So just claiming the $150 doesn't cut it. And often what taxpayers do is they claim these amounts on the assumption that no one's going to bother querying it. And I've asked accountants this, you know, would you expect the ATO to query a $150 laundry claim? And the general answer is no. And when I ask why, they say, because it's not worth it. And then I turn around and say, well, if I'm the ATO and I audited you, are you likely to defend that claim? And the answer then is no, because it's not worth it. I think So therefore, if I'm the ATO, I would actually ask that question. Because what that has led to is not so much about the laundry, it's that you're only able to claim the laundry if you can claim the clothing. So by the ATO questioning my laundry claim, they're discovering that people are claiming clothing that they are not eligible for the deduction for. So it's not just a $150 question, it could be a $1,000 question that's actually being asked. That's a really good point. Hmm. The fact sheet also speaks that under one Fifty, there must still be, once again, a reasonable basis for how you arrived at the claim. And the fact sheet goes on to explain that a reasonable basis is what you've already described, the dollar per mm. load or the 50 cents per wash if shared. And I was asked recently, 
what, so we're expected to go and count the number of washes? And the short answer to that is, yes, yes you are. <laughs> so again, I think there's been a misunderstanding about mm. You can't just make figures up. There has to be a basis for how you arrived at that figure. That's right. That's right. I also use the other example. The alternative is to using the $150 is to actually substantiate your depreciation of your washing machine, your dryer, and your laundry powder and your water. Um, and, and who in their right mind is going to want to do that unless you're married to a mechanic and you'd have a separate washing machine just for the mechanic's overalls at the end of the day. So yeah, that's right. So the $150, it's, it's a, a round figure, a small figure, but you just can't claim it because everybody else does. All right, moving on to item D4, self-education expenses. I find it's still one of those grey areas trying to work out whether an amount has been incurred in relation to you deriving Mm -hmm. your assessable income. Um, Of course, we're not talking about professional conferences and seminars. This is Mm self-ed. So your understanding of what you think the misconceptions are, what do you see people getting wrong? Well, the whole idea with self-education is the the course has to be a specific course, prescribed course, correct college, university, etc. But it's to lead to, you know, it's got to have the connection with my current income earning position, and it's to, you know, it's likely to lead to an increase in income in that position. It's not to get me a new job. And you know, I'll ask the question: If I'm in Meyer, work in Meyer, and I study law do we think there'd be a self-education claim? And the general answer would be no. You think, but what if I work in the legal department in my studying law? Then it might be. Yeah. So you've got to look at exactly the the current job that you have and whether that that course is going is connected to that current job, not to give you a new job. And we had the recent case involving the, the teacher that, you know, if I'm a teacher and I want to become a, a vice principal, maybe an MBA might help me get that job. But yes, I'm currently employed in the teaching environment, but the principal and vice principal's roles are very different to a teacher's role, and therefore that was taken to be a new job, not an extension of my current job, and was not held to be deductible. So, Jenny, you mentioned the course, but the ATO's view is that you've actually got to look at per subject. So it's not just a case of saying, does the course relate to my job or to me driving my income? You've actually got to break it down subject by subject. And it may be that four of the subjects qualify and two of them don't. And that's that's a really good point that... Traditionally, we would look and say, I work in an accounting firm, I study commerce, then self-education is deductible. And we wouldn't necessarily ask for a list of the actual subjects that the individual studied that semester. We would look at it and say the course is deductible, whereas the ATO view, and supported by a couple of cases, is that we are to look at individual units and work out whether that unit relates to our our current job, which is really hard in this day and age because there are a lot of universities who insist as part of your degree you must do units that are completely outside your, your field. And unless they are specifically related to your employment, there's a really good chance the ATO will say that they are not deductible. All right, item D5, and this is including home office expenses, but this is our free-for-all. This is everything else that is work-related, and, of course, this is our $300 rule. Yeah, this is our if-in-doubt other. All right. Mm. Firstly, the $300 rule. Mm. Does this mean if I've incurred it, I can then claim $290 without substantiation? Potentially, depending on what the item is and what other claims you have in in other areas. Uh, at, at the end of the day, it's about work-related expenses, no more than $300 you know, being claimed without substantiation, but you must have incurred the expense and it must be related to your current income-producing a- activities. But here's the conundrum. 
if I don't have to keep a receipt, then how do I prove that I've incurred it? And I don't have to prove I've incurred it because I don't need substantiation. That's right. That's right. And that's the age-old argument that accountants have with their clients is that it's under a certain amount. If you don't have to substantiate, then how do I show that I've incurred? And we turn around and say, well, the best way to show you've incurred is keep the receipt. And then they say, but that means substantiation. You say, yes, but you don't need to. Um, I would say at the end of the day, look, the more receipts you've got, hand on heart, you can put your hand on heart and say to the ATO, absolutely, this is true, and you might get the tick. But the reality is the more evidence you've got, the better your, your likelihood. Now, I had an accountant who had an audit for one of their clients a little while back, and it was $299 claimed in D5. And when the ATO came to look at the audit, there was a, a list on the file of all the individual items that totaled, really totaled, $299. The ATO just said, yep, that's fine, and they went away. Now, imagine being in the accountant's shoes if that $299 had just been a fudged figure. If I was the ATO, I'd run that accountant's uh, tax agent code, have a look at how many other D5s they have a similar amount, and just knock them out, and then say, you proved me wrong. So it's just really important, again, just because you don't have to substantiate, you still, the more records you keep, the better off you are in that instance. It's about removing doubt, isn't it? Exactly. That's right. That's right. And remembering that the $300 here, plus you could have already had a travel allowance expense, or you might have had your motor vehicle expenses that have already got their own separate substantiation rules. So it's not necessarily $300 all, all up. But the other thing is, as soon as you have a union fee, you're going to blow your $300 substantiation rule out of the water because it is highly unlikely that a union would charge less than $300 per year and yet a union fee goes into D5. I had an accountant come up to me recently in a session where he said he had got an audit on a work-related expense and asked him how much it was. And I thought he was going to say $40,000 or a third of the employee's income or something like that. And he said $299. That's right. And I said, that's exactly why you're being audited. And he said, but you can claim up to $300 without substantiation. I said, yes, but if you're doing that across multiple clients, that's, that's right. why you've got an issue. That's right. And the, and remember, the ATO is not necessarily, you know, they're specifically looking, you know, they were given $130.9 million in the most recent budget to not only look at individuals but their tax agents. So this $299 issue is a big issue for tax agents and, and that's what we say to them. Every file, what does that person incurred? Is there a connection? Can they substantiate? Then the answer is the answer and that's what you claim and you don't claim any more or any less. What's really interesting of late as well is the ATO's use of technology and from my discussions with the tax office I know that they're now doing an exorbitant amount of data matching Mm -hmm. and it's not the old-fashioned data matching that we're used to. They're doing things like looking at not just e-tags, they're looking at passports. Mm -hmm. So if someone has a logbook entry that says they use their car for work purpose on the 15th of August this year, then the ATO goes back and says, hold on, you're overseas for the whole month of August. How is it possible that that entry was – in other words, it's made up. That's right. They're checking mobile phone towers. Yep. I'm not talking about where you're making a phone call and there's a record of that metadata in your phone Mm. list or the uh, telecommunications company can provide it. I'm talking about when you're just driving around, your mobile phone's tapping into towers in geographic locations. So you say you're on a work trip – and you might be driving from Newcastle down to Sydney to see a client, or you say that you're driving from Melbourne down to Geelong to see a client, 
but your mobile phone has you placed in the Hunter Valley or the Yarra Valley in terms of you know, having a wow of a time enjoying the wineries. And exactly. they're going to say, well, we think it's more likely you're with your mobile phone than where your car is placed. Yep, absolutely. So amazing use of data these days. Yep. The other thing that I would say there is uh, GPS trackers. I ask clients, do your do your clients have GPS trackers on their cars? Because if I was the ATO and I was doing an audit, I would actually ask that and see if I could get that data because there's a, a pretty good chance it's not going to correlate with a claim being made for that vehicle. Okay, so in summary, what should agents expect from the ATO and what do taxpayers need to do? Quick response to each of those questions. What do I, what should we, agents expect? Yes. Well, we would expect more and more activity from the ATO, whether it's just initial questionnaires, whether it's specific items, whether it's specific occupations. The reality is what do taxpayers need to do? Only claim what we incurred, show that there's a connection between the expense and our income, but keep the substantiations. Accountants need to look at each. Forget this, look at last year, see what we did, start fresh. You know, what have we got this year? What's your income? What's your expense? What records have you got? What do you need to keep? And then make the claim confidently. The ATO is certainly making it clear they will no longer tolerate the mindset that everyone cheats a bit on their tax, so I can do it too, or my mates claim it, or I'll just claim a little bit extra and no one will notice, or there's a standard deduction for the 150 of laundry, 300 work-related expenses, or 5,000K. Uh, I've got a comment here from the Commissioner who spoke at the National Press Club on the 5th of July 2017, so this is over a year ago. Truly in our sites, work-related expense claims, and we will be lifting our education, our support, our attention, our scrutiny and enforcement in this area. That's right. So closing observation, if every single person paid the correct amount of tax they're supposed to under the law and no one claimed anything that they're not entitled to, Revenue collections would unquestionably be higher and the rate of tax payable could be lower for everybody. That's right. And at the end of the day, that's what I say to clients. If you earn the income, pay the tax. The tax rate is not 100%, so you can then honestly do what you want with the rest of the money. And if it's okay for one, it's okay for all of us. And at the moment, we've got some people being quite aggressive and the majority not, and we end up with an unfair outcome. And as the ATO would say, a tax gap. Thank you, Jenny. Really appreciate your insights today. Thanks, Robin. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tax Yak. If you're enjoying our podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you are because it will help to improve the profile of the show. If you'd like to connect with us on social media and let us know what you think or suggest future topics or speakers, you'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. We look forward to you joining us next time.